welcome to ABA Ultimate Showdown, a podcast promoting constructive, respectful, and professional discourse in, to advance the field of behavior analysis. Hey, I want to interrupt real fast to let you know that, yes, ABA Ultimate Showdown's parent company, Graham Behavior Services, is an approved ACE provider, and a bunch of our rounds now count for continuing education credits. Great content and CEs, it's like the perfect combination. And it also supports us in developing and continuing the publication of this podcast. So thank you for your support. This episode will count for one supervision credit. So really excited to give you that. Supervision credits are so elusive. But in order to earn it, you're going to need to hop over to our website, grahambehaviorservices.com slash showdown, and enter the first code word, Hawaii, H-A-W-A-I-I, the 50th state in the union, state fishes, apua and home to Iolani Palace, and the largest dormant volcano in the world, Haleakala. First code word, pronounced Hawaii, Hawaii, or Hawaii. Check out our other rounds to earn CE credits from your car, couch, run, or garden. We've got those elusive ethics and supervision credits. So let ABA Ultimate Showdown help you reach that magic 32 hours. And all of your support, again, will allow us to keep bringing you quality, thought-provoking content. So seriously, thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. Now, back to myself. This is round five of the showdown. Our topic will center around supervision, We want to make it clear, while we're not experts on the specific topics we discuss, we consider ourselves lifelong learners, always looking to gain more knowledge. During this debate, we will construct arguments for both sides to present the audience with a comprehensive and balanced view of two sides of a controversial topic. Today, we will include a coin toss to determine speaking order. Each debater will have equal structured speaking time and will have an opportunity to ask and respond to questions. If you're interested in learning more about the debate format we use, check out our show notes or listen to our podcast introductory episode. We want to emphasize our most important modification to traditional debate formats. There is no winner, nor is there a loser. Our intention is to present a different point of view of a controversial topic that you may not have previously considered. We are aiming to disseminate the science in a constructive way by sharing knowledge and respect. Participating today are Megan Miller representing the pro side and Jillian Planner D. Tiberis representing the con side and I'm your host Candace Summers. I have been a therapist for Grand Behavior Services for a few years now. I am proud to say that I am a New Jersey native from the shore. I'm currently finishing my master's thesis in ABA. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a minor in education and art history and a certificate in developmentally disabled individuals and human services in 2014. After college, I worked in a private special needs school with individuals who were multiply disabled. I have also worked in home and in 
in their communities as a therapist working under the supervision of BCBAs throughout the years. When I'm not with our amazing learners or studying, you can find me painting or reading on the beach with my pups. Hi, I'm Megan Miller, a clinical supervisor and BCBA with Graham Behavior Services. I was born and raised on the Jersey Shore and graduated with a special education undergraduate degree from the College of New Jersey. I spent the first 12 years of my career working as a special education teacher in Hawaii and New Jersey. At Kane University, I specialized in high incidence disabilities, emotional disturbance while getting my master's of arts degree. I received my postgraduate certification in ABA from Penn State University. I'm also certified as an emergency medical technician in New Jersey. Anytime not working with clients and parents or producing GBS's podcast is spent with my handsome husband, my two adorable little guys, and my incredible family and friends. Hi, I am Jillian Planer de Tiberius. I am a BCBA and the Clinical Director of Grand Behavior Services. I graduated with my undergraduate degree in psychology from Rowan University and my master's in ABA from Caldwell University. I've worked in public and private schools and with individuals with special needs in home and in their communities for the past 10 years. Thanks, ladies. Let's get started with the debate. While researching round five, Jillian and Megan have worked together to research relevant sources. Each source is cited in the show notes found at grandbehaviorservices.com slash showdown. The motion for this episode will be, our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. Megan Miller will represent the pro side of the debate, that our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. Jillian DeTiberis will represent the con side that our current supervisory system is not sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. Megan posted a survey in a variety of social media groups requesting feedback on the supervisory experience. Thank you to all 134 respondents. I will read the complete results at the end of the podcast, but just want to relay the responses to our motion. We asked a We asked respondees to rate the level of agreement from 1 to 5, with 1 being strongly disagree and 5 being strongly agree to this statement. Our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. 9% of people strongly disagree. 29.1% of people disagree. 44% are neutral. 14.2% agree. And 3.7% strongly agree. Megan and Jillian will reference these, this question and the rest of the survey throughout the podcast. Again, if you want, to, want complete results, stay tuned after our closing remarks. Let's just dis- define some terms so everyone is on the same page. According to the BACB, BCBAs who meet supervision requirements are identified as such on the BCBA-BCABA Certificate Registry. In order to meet supervision requirements, BCBAs must complete an eight-hour supervision training that encompasses the experience standards. In order to retain their supervision status, BCBA supervisors must complete three continuing education credit hours in the topic of supervision for every two-year, 32-hour recertification cycle. For candidates seeking supervision, all required documents can be found on the BACB website along with a tip sheet. Who doesn't love that? Let's get back on track. During this debate, we will be focusing on the supervision of eligible candidates for the BCBA certification. 
it is important to mention that the supervisor and the supervisee cannot be related and that the supervisee cannot employ the supervisor at the time of the experience period. However, the BACB and the Professional and Ethical Co Compliance Code for Behavior Analyst Section 1.0 and 5.0 state that, quote, Employment does not include compensation paid to the supervisor by the supervisee for supervision services, end quote. The BCBA states, quote, the purpose of supervision is to improve and maintain the behavior analytic, professional, and ethical repertoires of the supervisee and facilitate the, deliv the delivery of high-quality services to the supervisee's clients, end quote. Effective supervision also includes supervising the supervisee using feedback and behavioral skills training and communicating and modeling expectations while in compliance with the professional and ethical standards. The supervisor needs to guide the supervisee to help them develop problem-solving skills, decision-making, and behavioral case conceptualization. It is necessary for the supervisor to review and give immediate feedback regarding written materials such as programs, data sheets, reports, etc. It is also important to evaluate the effects of supervision throughout the supervised experience. The structure of supervision should ideally be one-to-one. -one. However, group supervision is allowed if groups are between two to 10 supervisees with similar experiences. Quote, groups may not exceed 10 regardless of the number of supervisors present. End quote. Again, the BCBA, BACB had stated that. Group supervision may not exceed more than half of individual supervision hours during each supervision period, preferably supervision of the supervisor supervisee is done in person. However, this may occur through live or recorded video if needed. Contracts occur everywhere, so why not here? The supervision contract was developed to protect and inform all parties involved. This contract is written and signed at the start of the supervision period. What's included? According to the BACB website, and I'm directly quoting, the responsibilities of the supervisor and trainee, including the completion of the eight-hour supervision training by the supervisor and the adherence of both parties to the experience standards. A description of the appropriate activities and training objectives individualized to the trainee. The objective and measurable circumstances under which the supervisor will not sign the trainee's monthly and final experience verification form. The consequences if parties do not adhere to their responsibilities, including proper termination of the relationship. A statement requiring the trainee to obtain written permission for, from the trainee's on-site employer or manager when applicable. And an attestation attestation that both parties will adhere to the code. All documentation for supervision must be kept for at least seven years from the final supervision meeting. Supervisees are allowed to have multiple supervisors as long as it's stated in the contract and everyone knows their role. Supervisees need to start qualifying coursework and have secured a supervisor before accruing hours. There 
are three types of experience, supervised independent fieldwork, practicum, and intensive practicum. For supervised independent fieldwork, the supervisee must complete 1,500 hours, practicum 1,000 hours, and intensive practicum 750 hours. All of these include a minimum of 20 hours per supervisory period with a maximum of 130 hours. This is just for a BCBA candidate. It is different for BCABAs and RBTs. These hours will increase on January 1st, 2022 with an additional course requirement. For more information on this, reference the BACB newsletter in January and October of 2017 and October of 2018, which will be linked in the show notes. For me, I did the intensive practicum at a Center for Autism and Applied Behavior Analysis. Even though I have completed my hours, I am still gaining valuable experience working under multiple behavior analysts to become the best practitioner that I can be. Now that we have highlighted the specific supervisory guidelines put forth by the BACB, let's start this debate off right with the coin toss. The winner will get to choose whether to speak first or second. And heads goes to Megan representing the pro side, tails goes to Jillian representing the con side. Okay, heads it is. Megan, do you want to speak first or second? Ooh, I won. Um, I think I would like to speak second. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, Jillian will speak first for the con side and give the opening remarks discussing that our current supervisory system is not sufficient to train behavior analysts effectively. Again, the motion is our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. Thanks so much, Candice. Okay, so even though I'm about to discuss the ways in which our supervisory system is not sufficient to train upcoming behavior analysts, I just want to be clear on one thing. I'm discussing our supervisory system as a whole, not behavior analysts in general. Please don't get me wrong, there are a lot of excellent BCBAs out there. I mean, I am a BCBA, as is my debater today, Megan, whose professional skills I have a lot of respect for. I feel like I personally got a lot from my own educational and supervisory experience and ultimately became a qualified, professional, and ethical BCBA. Best BCBA ever, if you ask me. (laughs) Okay, okay, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, Anyway, we need to talk about our supervisory system because I think we're on the right track, but I don't think we're there just yet. And if there's one thing that BCBAs all want, it's to provide the best service possible. I think that stands for training potential BCBAs also. We need to guide and prepare them and be a model for what skills are needed and expected. Even though we have the task list as a guide, there are two issues that I see. First, the task list is not comprehensive enough to cover our whole scope and the services we provide. And second, there is very little structure about how to cover the task list and how to actually provide proper supervision. So let's discuss the first point, that the task list is not comprehensive enough to cover our whole scope of services. I know and agree that our field is highly structured and clinical in nature. While we should be able to discuss and implement behavior analytic programming to the best of our knowledge and ability, we are missing areas on the task list, and the main area I see this in is people skills. Before you laugh and switch the station, keep in mind that no matter what area of behavior analysis you work in, you are most likely working with people. Even if you're using your BCBA to work with pets or animals, you're still working with pet owners, families, and so on. 
Each of us work in some way with parents or caregivers, and that is nothing to address, and sorry, there is nothing to address this in the current or upcoming task list. There is nothing about discussing and presenting our treatment plans or interventions using appropriate language to the audience with which we are discussing it. Nothing in, in there is dealing with empathy, compassion, or how to work with families who are struggling with their family member's diagnosis. Behavior, behavior analysts have long been viewed as cold or clinical, which may sound like no big deal considering we understand behavior and can affect behavior change in a meaningful and positive way. However, that doesn't matter much if families don't trust us, don't like us, or don't listen to us. Of course, everyone remembers the seminal article on social validity from Wolf in 19, 1978, Social Validity, the Case for a Subjective Measure or How Applied Behavior Analysis is Finding Its Heart. It was such a wild thought for us to be including subjective measures about how much research participants liked their treatment and what they wanted to do. However, current research would not even be published without an aspect of social validity. I think now is the time to expand on this and extend social validity to the very start of our assessments and clinical practice. And how else are we going to learn these skills if they are not included in our training? So on to the second point, that there is very little structure about how to cover the task list and how to actually provide proper supervision. I've provided supervision before, as have many of my colleagues, and as, previous, as previously stated, I fancy myself a pretty good BCPA, <laughs> um, or at least, at least an ethical one. I tried my best to provide a sound supervisory experience, always doing my observations and meetings, and never signing off on hours that I shouldn't have. Uh, however, one area that I, and I believe other BCBAs struggle with, is exactly how to work through the task list. This is more than knowing the ethical requirements of providing supervision, and more than understanding restricted versus unrestricted hours. This is actually knowing what to do and how to provide supervision on the task list, especially in the cases that an individual doesn't know or doesn't perform a skill correctly. I've been pretty lucky in providing supervision in that I've worked with some really amazing BCBA candidates who all went on to become excellent BCBAs. But what if I hadn't? Of course, we have our feedback model and we work with varying levels of behavior therapists to whom we need to provide corrective feedback to. However, what if you are supervising a candidate and they're making frequent mistakes, not really up to snuff with the current task list. BCBAs are not trained in being teachers, and even if we are, which Megan and myself actually both are certified teachers also, the task list doesn't provide us with guidance about the proper steps to take when a supervisee is not responding appropriately to the task list or not understanding different parts. Do we just terminate our contracts? The task list should at least include what represents understanding of the task and require demonstration of skills where needed. More similar to the structure of the RBT task list checklist. Demonstration of certain skills such as completing assessments, writing treatment plans, and communicating with families should be required during the 1500 hours. In addition, there is no training or guidance for BCBAs on the new requirements of the upcoming task list. This leaves supervisors to seek information on their own and take continuing education workshops that focus on other people's interpretations of the task list. Shouldn't we have the option or even requirement to take another supervisor supervision training similar to the eight hour training that's required to become an eligible supervisor? I'm not saying that our supervisory system is the worst, 
All I'm highlighting here are ways it could be improved. I think there's too much left for new BCBAs to learn on the job once they gain their certification that could be covered beforehand and the supervision structure is too open-ended for BCBAs to navigate through and provide effective supervision. Thank you, Jillian. Now we will move on to Megan, who will give the opening remarks representing the pro side of the debate, stating that behavior analysts are providing quality supervision to future behavior analysts, BCABAs, and RBTs. Again, the motion is, our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. Thanks, Candice. The task list put out by the BACB is comprehensive and outlines the topics to be covered in our extensive supervisory process. We also have a 24-page ethical code that has a complete separate section on supervision. The BACB is constantly making amendments and changes to make this system better, and they let us know that through all the newsletters they send out. In 2012, they even established the Supervision Task Force, which, <laughs> which I think needs to be said in that way, right? With maybe some Star Wars music behind it or something. <laughs> anyway, um, we have people publishing about how to implement a better supervision experience. Behavior Analysis and Practice put out a special supervisory edition in October of 2016 with eight articles specifically covering various topics in supervision. In their research, recommended practices for individual supervision of aspiring behavior analysts, Sellers, Valentino, and LeBlanc, quote, summarize five overarching recommended practices for supervision. For each practice, detailed strategies and resources for structuring the supervisory experience are provided, end quote. Sellers, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering this name, Ali, Rosales, and McDonald give case examples to expand on the ethical code of the, in their paper, taking full responsibility, the ethics of supervision in behavior analytic practice. Sellers, LeBlanc, and Valentino collaborate in another article to point out pitfalls in the supervision process and how to avoid them in their 2016 research, recommendations for detecting and addressing barriers to successful supervision. In the April 2017 edition of Behavior Analysis and Practice, Garza, McGee, Schenk, and Wiskirchen, I apologize if I butchered that one too, quote, outline a systematic approach to BCBA supervision and provides a set of tools that supervisors can use to ensure that they are engaging in empirically based supervision practice, end quote. I haven't even broached the subject of books. Reed Parsons and Green put out the supervisor's guidebook. Evidence-Based Strategies for Promoting Work Quality and Enjoyment Among Human Service Staff in 2012. If you don't have time to read it, the podcast ABA Inside Track covers it comprehensively. Matt Sicoria of the Behavioral Observations Podcast and Dr. Lisa Britton just put out a book called Remote Supervision Fieldwork, uh, I'm sorry, Remote Fieldwork Supervision for BCBA Trainees. That goes as far as even covers interpersonal skills and how to teach professional self-care. With all of these resources at their fingertips, professionals are really negligent if they provide poor supervision. In their 2016 article, Sellers, Valentino, and LeBlanc make it very clear that the primary responsibility falls to the supervisors. Quote, the supervisor has the responsibility for development of all aspects of the applied behavior analytic repertoire, including the assessment and treatment skill set, ethical skill set, overall values and professional behavior, and interpersonal skills for interacting professionally with parents, clients, coworkers, and other professionals. The supervisor has an opportunity to shape successful behavior analysts who become emissaries for our profession. 
It seems like popular trends, uh, I'm sorry, that was an end quote. It seems like popular trends in behavior analysis conference discussions on podcasts, on social media groups, and in private conversations are contradictory. We collectively bash and complain about our current supervisory system and how it is inadequate, yet we warn about the dangers of and see good behavior analysts get completely overwhelmed on the daily with burnout. These two observations cannot coexist. Think back to when you were attaining supervision. You were probably also taking courses that include assignments, outside of class meetings, and exams, while trying to work full-time to sustain your quality of life and accruing hours. Additional requirements will exhaust the supervisees, put additional strain on current behavior analysts who are already stretched to their limit, and likely cause additional burnout. The system in place is already extremely labor-intensive and thorough. Furthering it even more would put an additional strain on supervisees and supervisors. Think about how, di how difficult it is to understand the existing fieldwork tracker Excel spreadsheet. If the BACB continues to increase the difficulty of attaining supervision, the response effort will become too great, and we will be turning away qualified and talented potential behavior analysts. Many of the complaints about supervision come from unethical supervisors. Could there be more oversight? Moreover, more oversight costs money, and where's that going to come from? Behavior analysts who are already overworked and strapped? Donations from large autism organizations focused on directly helping individuals with an ASD diagnosis or all future individuals with a diagnosis? I feel like oversight is like a great idea on paper, but it's really impractical to implement. There's no funding for the kind of checks and balances many people routinely suggest. How many complaints do you already hear about the cost of initial and recertification? I know I've complained about it in the past. We don't live in a utopia. We can't sustain the kind of oversight suggested without straining our current professionals in the field. Too many changes will put a strain on our current resources and personnel and jeopardize people's ability to provide quality supervision. The BACB is thoughtfully implementing gradual systemic changes that will not unduly strain the system and those functioning within it. According to the January 2017 newsletter, 30 additional hours of instruction, specifically covering personnel supervision and management, will be added to the required coursework of all potential BCBAs, and 15 hours for those studying to be BCABAs. I think these kind of gradual changes will not stress the system and pave the way for steady growth as our field attracts more and more professionals to our ranks. Thanks, Megan. The next segment of our debate is the crossfire. Both sides will have the opportunity to ask and respond to each other's questions. We will begin with a question from Jillian, representing the con side of the motion. Megan, representing the pro side, will answer, then follow up with her own question. This alternating pattern will continue until the end of the segment. Again, the motion is, our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. Debaters, please make sure you answer the question to the best of your ability and ask for a clarification if necessary. As always, keep it respectful. I agree that additional oversight would be costly and we don't have the resources for it. But if there are reports that there are unethical supervisors, what should we do about that? That's a really great question. And the BACB provides an avenue to report ethical violations. They provide easy-to-find information on their website under the Ethics tab and have a whole PDF with questions to consider when reporting an alleged violation. I will link this directly in the show notes so that anyone listening can have access to this important oversight. 
Just like in any field or in any real life situation, people act unethically and they don't hit repercussions unless they are reported. This is an important component to ensuring that the field emerges slowly and ethically onto the professional stage. Okay, so my question for you. You mentioned that interpersonal or people skills is an important component to any behavior analyst's repertoire since we constantly work with people. I don't remember receiving any instruction on this as a student teacher, but know that the medical field does. Do you know if the new coursework will cover this? If not, what model would you suggest? Would you add it to the task list? All right, thanks, Megan. Uh, I reviewed the new task list and the new coursework that are upcoming, and while there are some additions, interpersonal skills are still not covered. My understanding is that even though the new coursework covers additional requirements about supervision and incorporates personnel skills and management, it does not cover interpersonal or people skills. The medical field puts a lot of emphasis on people skills or bedside manner, and I think our model should more closely follow this with at least a course or items on the task list reflecting it. All right, so my next question to you, um, Taylor LeBlanc and Nosek in 2018 recently discussed how BCBAs are missing training in essential interpersonal skills. In light of this, how could we say that our supervisory system is sufficient? That's a great question, Jill. And I know our survey was an extremely small sample, but almost half of respondees said that they received adequate supervisory experience in the area of and this was the question, proper empathy and how to speak with clients, family, care, families, caregivers, etc. I love the article that you're referring to, but I think some of the onus in this case falls on the supervisee. If they feel that they're not getting adequate supervision in this extremely crucial area, they should reach out to find another supervisor who can provide that training. The BACB lists all supervisors by geographic location, so trying to find someone else who would fill the holes in your supervisory experience is not impossible. Just like in every profession, no supervisor is perfect. If you want a good experience and you aren't getting it, you have to advocate for yourself. In addition, there are resources out there in this area, like I mentioned earlier. With these resources at their fingertips, professionals really are negligent if they provide poor supervision. Okay, so next question would be, um, how would you modify the current requirements of our current supervisory system in a way that doesn't strain the little resources we have, including personnel? That's a great question. Uh, I would continue to allow the autonomy that is positive in our current system. This encourages multiple supervisors, locations, and settings. I would do this while adding interpersonal skills to the task list, and I would also make demonstration of the skills included in the task list a requirement, similar to the field competency check for the RBT. Also, I would set ethical parameters for the cost, so time and money, of supervision. So my next question to you, Megan, is supervisors have to take one eight-hour supervisor training at the start of supervision to become certified. However, there is a new eight-hour supervisor training, and we do not have to retake the training. How would you make sure supervisors are prepared for the updates and changes since this is not required? Thanks, Jill. Again, like I said in my opening, supervisors have to stay current. In order to continue as a supervisor, the BACB requires that three hours of continuing education in the area of supervision, like Candace mentioned in um, her opening. There are online workshops and resources that explain the new changes that supervisors should be updated on. Again, professionals are negligent if they provide poor supervision. To provide a checks and balances, supervisees really should know about these changes and address them with their supervisor. 
they can and should hold their supervisor accountable for understanding and being able to explain the new training. That was awesome, ladies. Really thoughtful questions and responses. Our next segment will be the rebuttal. Jillian, representing the con side, will speak first. Jillian, it's your turn. Thank you, Candace. So, Megan, one of your arguments is that additional requirements will cause additional burnout. However, what I'm proposing is not an additional requirement. It's a better structuring of our current system with a few additions to the task list. Maybe I shouldn't necessarily say a better structuring, but at least a restructuring. One big example I see for this are restricted and unrestricted hours. The BACB currently requires at least 50% of hours be unrestricted. And for the 2022 changes, direct from the BACB, quote, at least 60% of supervised field work must be spent engaged in unrestricted activities, end quote. This leads me to believe that 100% of supervised field work can be spent doing unrestricted hours, which are those activities that typically do not involve working directly with clients. I understand the distinction. We don't want people who only know how to work directly, but don't we but don't know how to write treatment plans, complete assessments, and so on. But if you're going to require a certain amount of unrestricted hours, there should be at least a percentage that is required for the restricted hours. Both are equally important. Then think about the openness of our supervision structure. Supervisees can receive supervision at so many different locations that they are often lost and have difficulty finding a suitable location. Think of becoming a teacher. When it's time for a teacher to complete student teaching, the university doesn't say, go find a school somewhere and see if they'll let you be a student teacher. It may take you anywhere from a year to three years to complete. We won't check on you for at, at all except paperwork documentation. And if you don't like where you're signed up for, go find someplace else. Also, it can cost any amount of money the teacher decides or any amount of time dedicated to that location once you become a teacher. Could you imagine how many people would become teachers if student teaching was like this? Student teaching is a structured process in which students are placed with qualified schools and checked in on by, by their professors. Are there still problems with this structure? Of course, but it offers a glimpse into how other professions structure their supervision of trainees in different workforces. I know that the student teaching example is not a direct link to our supervision model. Within our system, our requirements are not linked to graduation, as it is with student teaching. However, this is just an example of the structure another field provides in their training structure of their trainees. Uh, there is a set amount of time it will take, a set amount of hours received weekly, and a set cost associated with it. As I mentioned, Taylor, LeBlanc, and Nosek in 2018 asked recently, can outcomes be enhanced by attending to relationships with caregivers? The researchers here acknowledge that while effective communication and using language appropriate for caregivers, sections 105 and 304 respectively, is included in our ethical guidelines, these skills are not taught or shown value in academic programs. If future behavior analysts are not learning these skills, how can we expect anyone to use them? Our survey, while just a small sample size, yielded some powerful information. Okay, so let's start at the very first question, which gauges on a Likert-type scale if our supervisory system is currently sufficient in training effective BCBAs. Only 3.3% of people surveyed rated that they strongly agreed to that statement. Only 3%. The majority of people surveyed, 45%, rated their agreement at a 3. 
I highly doubt we are satisfied being clear in the middle of sufficient supervision. As you pointed out, Megan, quite a lot of people described receiving excellent supervision and receiving supervision for free. However, as you said, there is a disconnect between what we discuss behind closed doors and what we discuss in the public domain. I think sometimes behind closed doors in the safety of friendship, people are able to say the things they truly feel, such as my supervisor is horrible. I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. Uh, with what I'm required to do in return for my supervision. I haven't learned anything from my grad program. However, when faced with public scrutiny, those things all of a sudden become excellent experiences. I know this is subjective. However, we can't discuss discount, we can't discount societal pressure to go with the flow. Nobody wants to be the first person to speak up or be blackballed from the BCBA community. It's a very small community after all, and you often end up working with the same people at different locations. Even for me to take the con side of this argument kind of could put me on the outs with the entire BACB. Hopefully not. Um, This brings me to another less talked about publicly publicly, but just as important topic of BACB supervision. What is the cost? Not only the cost monetarily, but the cost of time, life after your BCBA exam, self-worth. I've heard of people once receiving their BCBA owing years of their lives to locations that provide supervision for them with high weekly hour requirements that seem outlandish. Jobs that they're not satisfied in, but which they have to stay because they don't want to pay thousands of dollars for their supervision. Now, I know what you're thinking. Then they should have just worked someplace else, uh, should have just paid a supervisor and been done with it. But sometimes people see work compensation as a way to avoid the high costs often associated with receiving supervision. Supervisees are in a very vulnerable position because they are relying on their supervisors to show up for meetings, be available for scheduled sessions, and respond to their emails. I'm familiar with someone whose supervision and graduate program was delayed because the supervisee's professor wouldn't meet with them for over a month. The person had to pay for an additional semester of classes because their thesis was delayed. I've heard of people being assigned to clean their center location because they're earning their supervision. They essentially have to earn their keep by organizing and cleaning their location in a way that is beyond supervision and beyond basic tidying up. People have been required to bring food and coffee for their supervisors and professors to keep them happy. As a cash-strapped supervisee, this can really put people out who don't have the extra money. An ethical supervisor should not accept these gifts, as we know from our BACB ethical code. As I said, it's much more complicated than just finding a new job if you're in a place or at a school that you don't like or you feel isn't treating you fairly. There are not endless options for places to work to receive supervision. Some places don't offer supervision because of the requirements and the time required for BCBAs, or some require you to work there for a certain amount of time before receiving supervision. I feel I was very lucky in receiving supervision when I did, just for the cost of working where I was working. But there, that was a number of years ago, and I'm not sure how many of those locations still exist anymore. Thank you so much, Jillian. Those were excellent points. Now Megan, representing the pro side, will give her rebuttal. Take it away, Megan. Thanks, Candice. And thanks for bringing up the ethics guidelines, Jill. Sellers, Ali Rosales, and McDonald wrote an entire paper discussing each ethical guideline for supervisors. Quote, the BACB for behavior analysts provides the supervisor with an entire section outlining the requirements aimed at ensuring that BCBAs provide ethical supervision. 
These rules are meant to exert antecedent control over the supervisor and the supervisee's behavior, end quote. Now, here's what I love about their article is this next quote. Quote, it is possible for that rule following is enhanced when the rule follower is aware of the rationale behind the rule, as well as the potential negative outcomes to be avoided by following the rule. Whereas the code provides clear expectations of the desired behavior, it is beyond the scope of such a document to include a depth, in-depth rationales, examples, and resources, end quote. Just like the writers of the U.S. Constitution didn't provide a cheat sheet for the primary purpose of allowing autonomy of interpretation, the BACB leaves it up to us to interpret their code. Um, let's talk again about the survey. We had a lot of responses about supervisees having a wonderful experience. Even with the small sample size, I feel like that is proof that our current supervisory system is effective. People may complain about how the system is inadequate and insufficient, but they're having wonderful enriching experiences. Instead of looking at the few outliers who take advantage of the paperwork or practice unethically, we should focus on the supervisors getting it right. I also love how you bring up the student teaching model. I have very fond memories of student teaching and think that it's a great model for teaching. However, in behavior analysis, there are too many variables to make this a relevant com uh, comparison. We simply do not have, we don't currently have the kind of resources that the education field does, both historically and just in sheer numbers. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, quote, a projected 3.6 million full-time equivalent elementary and secondary school teachers were engaged in classroom instruction in fall 2017, end quote. That's compared to 39, eight, I'm sorry, 39,853 BCBAs and BCABAs combined as of October 1st, 2019, according to the BACB. To put those numbers in perspective, there were 3.5 million more teachers in 2017 than there are behavior analysts today. Okay, so indulge me for a second as I take a walk down memory lane aided by teachinghistory.org. I really love history, so I apologize in advance. When the U.S. was founded until 1939, there was no formal schooling for teachers. They were just high school graduates looking for better paying work. In 1839, Massachusetts opened the first normal school, which trained teachers. And similar schools throughout the next century only uh, sent teachers into practice for a week prior to getting their own classrooms or whole schools. Extended clinical practice did not become the norm until the 1950s and 60s, when with some states didn't even require student teaching. Fast forward to the 70s and 80s, the range of student teaching was four to 18 weeks. That's one month to... What is that? Four months. So like four and a half months. So that's a huge range. Even today, student teaching varies from 12 to 16 weeks of teaching, not accounting for snow days, sick days, vacations, and holidays. I'm just spitballing, but 12 full weeks of student teaching at seven school hours per day gives you 420 direct hours, and that doesn't account for breaks or lunch. And just like our supervisory system, the experience varies with the quality of the teacher who you work with. Your experience may also vary from the job you eventually receive. For example, my student teaching experience was awesome. I had great mentors in an in-class support and inclusive classroom, as well as a resource room, and that's terminology from New Jersey. The experience only partially prepared me, though, for my first teaching job in New Jersey, which was a self-contained classroom. 
Don't get me wrong, I'm a special ed teacher. I adore teachers and I love the public and private education systems that our country has worked so hard to uphold. I just want to draw the comparison that student teaching has evolved over the almost 250 years our country has been in an existence and it still has variability. We've only been certifying behavior analysts for 21 years and I think we're doing a pretty good job at training the people we have. There is variability in every practicum experience, from the education field to the medical field. There will be variability in the skills and ethics of any supervisor in any field. Think of how many people complain about their supervisor or boss on the daily. Obviously, not at Graham, (laughs) because our boss seriously creates the most ideal and ethical work environment. She's awesome. Definitely. Anyone who needs a job, come work for us. But in literally every job, the skills and practical ethical practices of individual supervisors varies, often without much oversight. I think that the BACB's requirement for coursework, paired with supervision, alleviates some of this variability. Supervisors are responsible for knowing what is expected of them and for searching out quality, ethical supervision. If they can't find someone to provide it in person, there are distance telehealth supervision models that are plentiful. Just do a Google search for remote or distance BCBI supervision. It returns tons of returns, I guess, whatever. Okay, so I want to jump back for a minute to your opening remarks. You pointed out that it's cumbersome to work through the task list. I personally, though, feel the need to allow some autonomy for supervisors to capitalize on their strengths, to introduce supervisees to various elements of the task list. Look at the work of Dr. Lauren Kreisak, I apologize again if I butchered that name, and Celia Heyman are doing the work that they're doing using the principles of behavior analysis to, gu- to help guide supervisees. They are having supervisees track their own behavior using acceleration charting, which is awesome. They're ensuring for discrimination chaining. They're programming for generalization, and they're developing concept formation through stimulus control. They're also usually using relational frame theory to problem solve behavior and uh, pro- for problem solving of behavior analysis applications. Listen to Behavioral Observations podcast episode ninety five for more information on their work, which I dare to call revolutionary, but also kind of makes me say, duh. Why haven't we been doing this all along? Without autonomy, they never would have been able to develop these kind of protocols. Sellers, Valentino, and LeBlanc note that supervisors should have evaluation systems in place. The BACB, I'm sorry, quote, the BACB in 2014 specifically indicates that supervisors must create systems for the purpose of assessing the outcomes of their supervision activities and efforts, end quote. This is one area I have to work on as a supervisor, sorry, but something that's seriously extremely valuable to both the supervisee and the supervisor. This includes evaluating performance and competency with clients, but also with the work completed during unrestricted hours. In addition, there should be evaluations of performance in the supervisory relationship. If both parties are doing a good job at holding up the agreements made in the supervisory contract, This feedback model alone would benefit supervisees in their relationships with families and clients in the future. So while there's definitely variability among supervision experiences, the variability could be what makes it so effective. For anyone that requests supervision from me, I will always state that they have to have multiple supervisors and experiences. I'm a huge proponent of using multiple exemplars in regards to supervision, both with the knowledge that different supervisors impart and with physical locations. This seems to be a widespread practice, too. Almost 75% of our respondents to our survey have or had two or more supervisors. This allows for a natural checks and balances while increasing the probability that supervisees access at least one ethically practicing supervisor. 
Thanks, Megan. Those points were very thought-provoking. The next segment of our debate is the second crossfire. I, as the moderator, will ask the questions of both sides. We will attempt to keep an alternating pattern of responding. Debaters, please make sure you answer all the questions to the best of your ability and ask for clarification if possible. As always, keep it respectful. For supervisors, do you think the BACB should structure or outline the cost of supervision, either monetary or time commitment, and how? So the BACB does put time allotments into the minimum number of hours supervisors need to meet with their supervisees. I, I really think that by further restricting or mandating the amount of hours is, again, an imposition on the autonomy of supervisors. Everyone's approach to supervision is different. What may take Jillian 10 minutes to describe may take me 45. (laughs) I'm definitely more (laughs) long-winded. Maybe more verbose is a kinder term. But anyway, in addition, supervisees vary in their skill and experience level. If I have a newbie to the field, I may have to provide didactic and dynamic instruction on a specific topic, like, for example, teaching in the natural environment. And that may take several hours over the course of several sessions. But if a supervisee is coming from an ABA classroom, for example, I may be able to just explain, provide provide a brief model, and then they get it in half an hour. The cost question is something I haven't really looked into, though. Um, Almost two-thirds of the respondees to our survey responded that their supervision was provided at no cost to them. I think this question does need to be looked at further, though, in order to protect supervisees from being taken advantage of. However, again, there are so many distance telehealth supervision uh, resources that supervisees should be able to price compare and make sure that they're getting the best value. With the variation in skill and experience level of both supervisors and supervisees, more mandates than currently exist would really just be more cumbersome and may inhibit every effectiveness, essentially wasting everybody's time. Um, On a side note, if a supervisee feels that he or she is being taken advantage of, either monetarily or with the parameters being set upon them, I encourage them to reach out to Dr. John Bailey and the ethics hotline. Everyone should be held accountable for what they are imposing on supervisees. Thanks, Megan. We will link everything we discussed as well as the ABA ethics hotline and BACB ethics reporting in our show notes in case anyone needs to access these resources. So, Jillian, like Megan mentioned earlier, supervisees should advocate for themselves. If a supervisee is not receiving quality supervision, they should terminate the contract and find supervision elsewhere. Why do you think many supervisees don't go this route since it's against against their best interest? That's a great question. It's... But it's so much more than just terminating the contract and moving on to another supervisor. What if it's at your full-time job? There are limited options for full-time work in the field of ABA and in general. So it could be very risky to leave a full-time job. It can also be difficult to find a full-time job with the possibility to receive supervision. This is even harder to come by. I was just speaking with someone who was looking for a new job because their current placement wasn't offering supervision hours and they were having a very difficult time even finding a part-time location that would offer supervision. Also, what if the BCBA is just signing off on hours but not providing a quality supervision experience? The supervisee might be okay with that and then we have someone who receives their hours, becomes a BCBA, and doesn't have proper experience. I think this is a much bigger issue or this is much bigger than just putting the responsibility on the individual. 
Thanks, Jillian. I'm so glad that Megan mentioned earlier how we've only been certifying BCBAs for 21 years. When compared to other fields, we are so new and there is plenty of room for us to grow. That being said, Megan, in what ways would you see us changing and updating our supervisory practices, if any? That's a really good question, Candace. I think that there are more intelligent and experienced minds than mine looking into this, and I really have full faith in the BACB and the course that they're leading us on. I do think that the one area that needs further policing would be setting a maximum cost, both monetarily and I don't know how to say maybe like promise-wise for supervision. I've heard of companies requiring supervisees who received free supervision from their staff to work at their company for two years after certification, not even from the end of the supervision or from the first time they see, sit for the test, but from their certification date, or else they would have to pay thousands of dollars, probably similar to like the situation that Jill had mentioned before. Again, I don't do research in this area, but that just doesn't sit right with me on several ethical levels. Thanks, Megan. The next question is for Jillian. If you make the supervisory experience more structured, how would you still allow for autonomy across settings, supervisors, and locations? Thanks so much, Candice, for the question. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. You could provide structure and more concrete guidance and still allow multiple supervisors and locations and various experiences. Nothing is saying that you can't go beyond what's required by the BACB to be an effective supervisor, but we need to make sure people are at least meeting the minimum. Thanks, Jillian. The last question will be for both of you. Do you think the current supervisory system takes advantage of supervisees? I think I've kind of skirted around this question throughout the podcast, but I don't think that it does. There are always going to be people who practice unethically, who take advantage of every situation, no matter what you put into place. However, as a system, I think that the BACB has set up supervisees to be accountable for their hours and also gives them ways to advocate for themselves. While I do think the compensation thing needs to be reviewed, I think the system as a whole has been created and is effective and also allows for checks and balances. Also, as I put into the contracts with my own supervisees, supervisors should have autonomy about what they put in. I put in that I think that everyone should have multiple supervisors. It will provide a varied experience and allow supervisees to observe different strengths of different supervisors. And hopefully with different supervisors, you're going to have some um, ethical um, experience. Thanks so much for this question. I think often our supervisees are taken advantage of, and unfortunately, I think it's only gotten worse in recent years. Supervisees are the next generation of BCBAs and should be fostered and developed. They aren't assistants there to get our coffee or bring us food, and they aren't indentured servants owing their lives as BCBAs to us for our for our time spent training them. I've already covered plenty of things that I've heard happening to supervisees. The BACB needs to get involved here so we can grow and develop our field and so we don't get a bad reputation for making life difficult for our supervisees. Our next segments will be the summary and final focus. Jillian representing the con side will speak first. Jillian, you have the floor. Thanks, Candace. 
Megan, I appreciate all that you shared with us about teachers and the evolution of student teaching. I think it gives us a very good place to go for our future. I also wanted to make mention of one more thing about this, which is the mentoring teachers receive for their first year. Again, there is a designated cost, time period, and oversight provided for this, and your mentor helps you through your first year of teaching. This could be another good place for us to go for the future of BCBA supervision. But I digress. And as I said in the beginning, I'm not here to say that our supervision structure is horrible, but I am here to say that it could be better. It needs to be structured differently so everyone knows exactly what skills should be demonstrated and exactly what hours to complete. It should have additional topics included on the task list, including parent training and working with families, compassion, and empathy. I know it's difficult to provide oversight to all of the BCBAs providing supervision, but this is where a structured plan for continuing education comes in, along with quality systems put in place. I know the onus is on the supervisee to work to gain quality supervision, but it's also on the supervisor to provide quality supervision and on the BACB to ensure quality supervision. The BACB needs to do a better job regulating supervision so supervisees can have a quality experience and so they can prevent abuses of supervisees. There will always be outliers and there will always be awesome supervisors. However, we need to get a more even field so more supervisees can have a favorable experience. With all of this considered and based on my research, I don't think that's provided consistently enough right now. As far as our data go, I don't think we'd like the trend. Thanks, Jillian. Now giving her summary and final focus, Megan, representing the pro side, will make her closing statements. Megan, you have the floor. Thanks, Candice. As Jillian had stated before and I alluded to, I'm also a certified special education teacher. While you may have some short experiences prior to student teaching, primarily you only have one main student teacher supervisor in one setting. There are good student teacher supervisors and there are bad student teacher supervisors. There is very little oversight and any input varies from institution to institution. Yet, within the field of education, I never heard one argument that the current student teaching system is bad or needs improvement. The value and worth of a great teacher comes from an internal desire to educate yourself and constantly strive to be the best professional you can be. For us, the structure is there, the task list, the ethical code, the supervisory experience standards. Policing this more than we already do would put an impossible strain on our resources. People need to use the resources that are currently in place and maximize the experience. Supervisors need to make sure that supervisees hit the areas of the task list and also vary supervisors, settings, and client profiles. Supervisees need to look at these resources and advocate for themselves. If they get a bad supervisor, terminate the contract. Find somebody better. You will only get out of your experience what you put into it. Take responsibility to know that you are supposed to be getting to, to know what you are supposed to be getting and find it. With remote supervision these days, there's really no excuse for receiving poor supervision. Supervisors need to take responsibility for the supervision they provide. I'm going to take a direct quote from our survey. This is someone, uh, a comment that someone had made. Quote, as a new BCBA, I am not immediately supervising those accruing fieldwork because I want to be confident that when I provide super, uh, that supervision, it will be high quality. End quote. This is exactly the kind of ethical behavior that supervisors and newly minted BCBAs should emulate. 
Again, it isn't time-based or experience-based. It falls on the individual to know when they are proficient enough to provide a meaningful supervisory experience. Variation in experience comes with the territory. The BACB has set a path that adds hours to both supervision and classroom components to try to modify for this. I think that we as a field should trust our elected leaders to see this through and model ethical behavior. And I know I sound like a broken record, but with all of the available resources at their fingertips, professionals are negligent if they provide poor supervision. On the flip side, if the supervisees want a good experience and they aren't getting it, let's keep empowering them to advocate for themselves. The only way that we will grow as a field is to act collaboratively and have respect for all levels of experience. Thank you, ladies, for your thoughtful and thorough defense of your sides. So many important points were made today. This is a tough discussion with a lot of considerations that need to be made. Supervision does vary, but it is that innate to the process or something that can be altered? Stay tuned for next month for a new ABA Ultimate Showdown episode. The next round will leave you wondering, should ABA permeate into every aspect of your life or can you compartmentalize? If you have ideas or topics for future debate, have respectful suggestions on ways we can improve this podcast, or if you are interested in being a guest debater, please email showdown at grandbehavior.com. If you have enjoyed what you heard and found your aha moment, please subscribe to our podcast. Visit our website at grandbehaviorservices.com slash showdown. Like or follow Grand Behavior Services on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. And visit our YouTube channel to be alerted when new episodes are out. Also appreciate your thoughtful review on the platform you listen to us on. Finally, we ask our audience two things. Be respectful and thoughtful when you respond to other people and their ideas. Remember that everyone has a unique learning history that has brought them to this moment. It will make you a better person and further promote behavior analysis. Go forth and deliver good ABA. This podcast has been brought to you by Grand Behavior Services. Grand Behavior Services provides quality, comprehensive, evidence-based therapy to individuals with any behavior challenges or and autism spectrum disorder to create effective behavior change in themselves while empowering their families to help them pursue productive, purposeful, and fulfilling lives. Grand Behavior Services, professional, supportive, optimistic, proactive, compassionate, scientific, trustworthy. You're still here. Thanks for sticking around to hear the survey results. Grand Behavior Services conducted a survey in a variety of social media groups requesting feedback on the supervisory experience. Thank you again to all 134 respondents. Here are the complete results. We asked respondees to rate their level of agreement from 1 to 5 with 1 being strongly disagree and 5 being strongly agree to the statement. Our current supervisory system is sufficient to train effective behavior analysts. 9% of people strongly disagree. 29.1% of people disagree. 44% are neutral. 14.2% agree. And 3.7% strongly agree. Question 2. Asked, when did you receive supervision? 57.5% said they received or are receiving supervision under task list 
4. 19.4% received supervision under task list 3. 9.7% received supervision under task list 2. 8.2% received supervision under task list 1. 3.7% are receiving supervision under task list 5. 0.7% are studying to become an RBT or already are an RBT. 0.7% became a BCBA prior to implementation of supervision hours. Question 3 asked if you received supervision, how many supervisors did you have? 33.6% said two supervisors, 26.9% said one supervisor, 20.9% said three supervisors, 10.4% said more than five supervisors, and 8.2% said four supervisors. Question 4 asked, check all the locations that you received are receiving supervision in. 61.2% of people said in-home, 44% said ABA center, 34.3% said public school setting, 16.4% said private ABA school, 14.9% said private school setting for individuals with disabilities. 0.7% worked in other settings but not getting supervision. 0.7% said business setting, otherwise known as OBM. 0.7% said residential program community-based. 0.7% said adult services but under clinical psychologists. 0.7% said group homes for individuals with intellectual disabilities. 0.7% said residential setting, not ABA specific. 0.7% said charter school. 0.7% said university setting, teaching. 0.7% said preschool. 0.7% said research. 0.7% said community. 0.7% said consultations. 0.7% said adult day program. 0.7% said community mental health. 0.7% said adult state operated residential center. 0.7% said psychiatric hospital. 0.7% said daycare. Question 5 asked, check all the skills for which you feel you received are receiving adequate experience while conducting your hours required for your BCBA, BCABA exam. 76.1% implementing discrete trial instruction. 68.7% implementing natural environment teaching. 66.4% said writing programs and behavior intervention plans. 48.5% said proper empathy and how to speak with clients, families, caregivers, etc. 47.8% said delivering positive and corrective feedback. 47.8% said facilitating, facilitating social interactions. 44% how to collaborate with other professionals. 42.5% conducting skill acquisition assessments. 40.3% working directly with families completing parent training. 39.6% conducting behavior assessments. Example, like an FBI or an FA. 23.1% how to ethically terminate services. 20.1% how to supervise future candidates. 
13.4% using ABA with other populations, example, general ontology, brain injury, high incidence disabilities, and so on. 9.7% organizational behavior management, 3%, none of the above, 0.7% said day programs for adults, group homes. 0.7% said some of the above. 0.7% said I self-direct my learning in these areas. Question six asked respondees to choose the statement most relevant to the supervisory contract you signed with your supervisor. 65.7% I received supervision at no cost to me. 13.4% I received supervision at no cost to me with the stipulation that I would work at an organization for a designated amount of time or have to reimburse the organization a set amount. 13.4% I received supervision and had to pay my supervisor directly or an organization. 0.7% said I'm not planning on receiving supervision or planning to sit for the exam. 0.7% paid a class with my degree. 0.7% I received supervision through my university program. I pay for a class through my grad program. 0.7% part of graduate school. 0.7% through my master's program received through school that I paid for school paid supervisors. 0.7% through school and work at no cost. 0.7% volunteered at a private school to receive free supervision. 0.7% this was before contracts were mandatory. And real fast before you start listening to another one of our podcasts, just wanted to give you that second code word. And although I taught a year in Hawaii, I've never actually been to but would love to go to the 49th state Alaska. The second code word is Alaska. A-L-A-S-K-A, which actually has more volcanoes than Hawaii. That's insane to me. And three million lakes. I can't wait one day to visit Alaska. A-L-A-S-K-A, our second code word. Question seven asked, choose the statement that is most relevant. 48.5%, I am a BCBA or a BCBAD who supervises candidates for the exam. 20.9%, I am a supervisee and am planning to sit for the exam. 19.4%, I am a BCBA or BCBAD who does not supervise candidates for the exam. 5.2%, I am an ABA therapist or have worked with professionals in the fields of ABA in the past. 4.5%. I am an RBT. 1.5%. I am a parent of an individual with an autism spectrum diagnosis.